Hello, this is Philosophize, and we've been watching Slaughterhouse Five. Hello, farewell, Matt. Ah, very good. I see that you've recently watched the cocaine fueled fever dream that is uh, Slaughterhouse 5. <laughs> Slaughterhouse 5, yes. That's what we're talking about today. Slaughterhouse 5, 1972, American film directed by George Roy Hill from a book by Kurt Vonnegut, one of the greatest science fiction writers of the, uh, of the 60s and 70s. But the, mm. the book was written in 69, so the, the, the film is hot on its tail. Apparently you really liked the film as well. Apparently you did. Never heard that before. That doesn't happen much, yeah. does it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw that as well. He said he, he, he loves watching it and it just makes him laugh. And uh, they thought <laughs> they really captured the, the essence of the novel. So, yeah. yeah, that's good. So everyone's happy. Yeah. Are you happy? Did you enjoy the film? It's a bit odd. It took a while to figure out whether it's sci-fi or not, although it claims to be, so it probably is. Um, and then, yeah, it took more concentration than I thought it would require. I was expecting something a bit more, uh, as as uh, people like you would say, Dave, classical realist. But uh, it wasn't. It was more uh, modernist. Did I use those words correctly? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're not my favourite words for it. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, one one is got a kind of fractured, dis, disjointed, disjunctive kind of narrative, non-linear, and one yeah. is. One is linear, and uh, there can be all kind of ranges between the two. This one was quite on the far side of non-linear. There's those moments of of fast intercutting. There's the photograph yeah. scene when Billy has got the Pilgrim building opening, and it cuts to and from from that to a photograph when he's a prisoner of war. Mm. And then there's the time when Edgar, in the World War II sequence, is nominated to lead the American... Um, the American Party of Prisoners of War, and that cut back and forth between um, Billy's nomination to the Lions Club. It's just cutting back and the sound overlays. So you get there yeah. are other resonances happening, but those are two extreme moments where it's really pointing out to you look, this is how memory works, so to speak. Too big for one man in this condition. Honey, he wanted to be left alone. You always take his side, don't you? Daddy! Dad! The film opens, cold open. This woman called Barbara and her husband Stanley arrive at a house. They're knocking on doors, trying to get into the house, shouting for her father. We then see her father, Billy Pilgrim, who's an old man sitting at a typewriter and he's typing out with a really ratty old typewriter, it's got to be mm. said, a letter to the editor of the Ilium Daily News. And he types out this In my last letter, I'm afraid. I didn't fully explain what happened to me. I have come unstuck in time. I jump back and forth in my life, and I have no control over where. And at that point, he sort of like sits up straight, stares straight into the camera, and we cut to this kind of snowy forest. There's a German tank moving in the distance uh, with troops, and Billy kind of slips past the burning American ve uh, armoured vehicle, 
um, and just wanders across some snow-covered uh, covered fields in Germany behind, well, I think it's Belgium, actually, but behind German lines at least, Yeah. Um, until someone grabs his leg. At that moment, boof, we cut back to the typewriter, and it continues. For instance, this morning I was on the planet Tralfamador with a friend. He looks up, and this time he smiles, <laughs> and he's in this kind of dome in, in a kind of swirly atmosphere in some kind of other planet with um, his friend, Montana, reading from Life magazine, and they're laughing and look quite relaxed. Cut back to the scene, and I was trapped behind German lines in World War... Dot, 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 dot. And really, from that point, we don't return to that scene until about 10 minutes to the end of the film, really. and. What the whole film is going to kind of do is kind of jump around between the long story, his life in Ilium, getting married, his job as an optometrist, becoming very successful and rich, mainly by marrying into a rich family, the Merbles, his two kids, the problems he has with the son, a plane crash, which I hope we talk about in a bit, old age and his death. We get this kind of line of experience. But then we also get, if you like, a focal point, his experience over a few months in World War II in a, in a prisoner of war camp and then at Dresden. And that's going to be, if you like, the main, the main part of the story in its own way. And also we get his later life in this dome in Tralfamador with these uh, bodiless aliens, we just hear their voice, with Montana, um, Spot, his dog, um, and um, eventually a baby. I think that's, that's, that's really what it is, isn't it? The film just jumps back and forth, resonating, as we said, between different events in these different timelines. Where'd you get all this? Red Cross. Clerical error. They've been sending us 500 parcels a month instead of 50. Three years now. We've got rather a laugh, actually. Shouldn't you tell them? I mean, shouldn't you give it back? Oh, Jack, you haven't been in the fight for very long, have you? Come on. I keep forgetting wars have always been fought by children. Where did you get this absurd garment? They gave it to me. Who? The Germans. They didn't give you a coat, Yank, they gave you an insult. Hey, son, over here. I think what the film really does really well is, is move from comedy to tragedy, backwards and forwards, uh, really quickly. If you like, one of the moments where that really happens to me in the Prisoner of War sequence is when they arrive at the first Prisoner of War camp and they're all lined up, all the Americans are lined up, and the British come out of um, their barracks singing, Hail, Hail, the Yanks are here, this really cheery tune. Yep, and they invite them in, they give, and everyone just sort of like going in, and then the camera just stays and it stays on the Russian prisoners who are behind this barbed wire fence, who are in rags and have got absolutely nothing, while the British have somehow managed to secure food and warm blankets from the Red Cross and from charity and from all of those yeah. kind of things that are going on. And it's really just showing the difference between the different experiences. Because when the Americans see the British come out, they're all spick and span, they're all, you know, well, they're all well shaven. They're all full of high spirits. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's all because they're nicking uh, supplies off the Red Cross. 
Yeah, exactly. As Billy says, why don't you give them back? And the, the commander just looks at him with a kind of, oh, you poor fool, you haven't been in this war very long. <laughs> what happened to me? You passed out back there and I brought you in here. Here. Try some of this. This will fix you up. And a hot. Tastes pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to stay. Oh, what the heck? I might as well. I got some food when I was back there. I don't mean to be impolite, but how come you're in the army? I couldn't stay out. Not with the Nazis and the Japanese threatening to conquer the world. You know, as a matter of fact, I got a boy your age seeing action in the South Pacific. Hey, that's really something. Yeah. I used to tell my students there's a monster loose in the world. One day I got tired of telling him, I said goodbye, and I joined up. <laughs> I thought you were a teacher. Oh, come on. You have that confidence in a very good way with words. Well, I'll tell you one thing, son. We don't mince phraseologies at Boston Trade and Industrial. <laughs> oh, boy. I wonder if my father were still alive. If uh... I don't think he would have. Don't you ever sell him short, son. Well, Mom would never have let him. You couldn't blame her, could you? But then I'm lucky, I guess. Margaret's a very understanding woman. We were childhood sweethearts. Yeah, that's nice. You got a girl back home? No one's special. Margaret's the only woman I've ever known. Here's Margaret. She looks awful nice. She's just about everything a man could ask for. Oh, oh, watch this. It's my mom in our backyard. Oh, you have a very nice-looking mother. Yeah, she is. Very nice. It's a nice house, too. That's the back. It's a nice yard. The main thing that, that stuck out to me in the war sequence was uh, Edgar Derby who's this um, sort of mentor figure to Pilgrim as he um, uh, so he sort of looks after him as he's when he first arrives. Uh, one of the other characters is intent on killing him and indeed eventually does kill him, although it takes him a very long time to do it. And um, he's sort of this um, very American dreamy. He's um, volunteered to come to the war you know, out of patriotism and he congratulates Pilgrim on wanting to be an optometrist because there's always going to be optometrists and people, you know, people always need them. So it's practical and uh, it's got a profit there. And he says that's a very good free market. Um, and it's providing a service to the community, which, what's it, free determination and free market all dovetailing yeah. in one. Yeah, mate, absolutely. Yeah, and it's all, you know, and, and it's sort of like, yeah, no, you know, the, you know, we Americans got to stick together. You know, this is really about, Freedom, American capitalism, um, sort of surviving against the uh, the fascists, and um, of course, like under underlying is the uneasy alliance with the communists, which is then sort of underlined by this um, another character who who appears in a sort of like a, an American flag oh, mixed man. in with the swastika. Howard Campbell Jr. Yes, the f- <laughs> yeah. from the Free American Corps. Brilliant. Yeah, who's saying no? It's actually you no. Know, the Germans are fine. It's the uh, the communists we've got to be worried about. Sort of like advocating for um, 
sort of changing sides in the war. And Edgar sort of presented as this moral paragon, very influential on Pilgrim's sort of like development because he's a young man when he's in these sequences. But then Edgar gets shot for looting. Yeah. It's sort of contrasted against other characters who are looting for sort of like, oh, we can make some money off this. Whereas, um, whereas Edgar's free and open about it. And the reason why is that it's been pre-established that he's written this letter to his, his family saying, oh, going to Dresden. That's where that um, statue we got was from, that um, our son smashed. Which, which I, think, I think is really, there's lots of those moments about Dresden where it's sort of described and, and illustrated before the attack. Because now the word Dresden primarily means the attack rather than the, the town. It's sort of like, what was Dresden before that event happened? So it's established that, and then he, so Edgar runs to the pilgrim saying, look, look, I found it, exactly the same statue. You know, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that, isn't that sort of, you know, providence, you know, if I found this, I'm going to be able to give this to my family. And then he's just free and open to the SS. <laughs> he's just yeah. rooted. He goes up to us, look what I found. <laughs> yeah, how could anyone possibly um, judge him for, for that, it's not selfish looting, it's looting for the family. But, and then they take him up against, put him up against the wall and they shoot him. But it is definitely looting, what he's doing there. That, that statue, you know, should have really been catalogued, ideal. I mean, whether the Nazis would have done this or not is a different question. I think but... that, they, doesn't the general who's got it, he's talking with his colleague, just throw it to the ground as they walk off, and in the background you see Edgar shot. I mean, it's the, the whole senseless and uselessness of it, that, that their son broke it that somehow mm. this little item survived the absolute carnage of Dresden bombings. Yeah. yeah? And what luck. What, I mean, it's, it, in a sense, it's, it seems like there's a, appearances of serendipity and luck here. What luck that this survived. What luck that I found it. What luck that I can take it home. <laughs> and then, ha, oh, you want to know what luck is, mate? Yeah. yeah. Now you're going to get shot for this little bit of luck, which yeah. is just going to be thrown away and discarded anyway. I didn't. I didn't spot them throwing it away. That that sort of that really adds to it, because um, you know there is no justice going on here. It's sort of this aftermath of Dresden. But yeah, I thought I thought that to be a really interesting and more morally complex than it would seem character. What was his name, Han? Who? The one that was killed in Dresden. Edgar Derby. Oh, that's right. Poor old Edgar Derby. Oh, that was really awful. They shot him for, um... What was it, Billy? Oh. Well, anyway, before that, they found this diamond right in the pocket of Billy's coat. Oh, Lord knows how it got there, and Lord knows why somebody didn't find it before. It probably came from some poor old Jew they'd taken it away from. So many of them had their uh, money in diamonds. Jesus, Dad, I'm on the John! So let's look at the, the long timeline now of his life. Yeah. So um, we, we kind of, it's put together in, it jumps back and forth, but um, we see um, Billy getting married, getting married to a Valencia, having his son and daughters, Barbara and Robert. They grow up. One of the more interesting moments, and I, I, I'm going to really want to pull this one out because it's going to be really important a bit later when we start bringing all these together, is Billy and Spot the dog. Billy and his dog. I yeah. mean, you've got this, this early montage sequence kind of from spring to summer with him training the dog outside, even trying to get the dog jump into a, a, a fire truck that he's driving, which we don't know why. And then when his first kid is born, him trying to show everybody the dog sitting up in the corner while everyone's <laughs> gathered around the child and the dog yeah, just walks over. 
I mean, I, th- I think the dog is the only character that um, that he shows any real affection towards. There, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a really interesting, and he's good. So we've got Spot the dog. We've got kids. Uh, one of the other things that happens in his life is that we find out about his PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. He he undergoes electric shock therapy for it. You see a scene of him hiding under blankets while his mum's talking to another hospital guest about how the war has affected him and how the death of his friend, Edgar, that you just talked about, really affected him. There's a scene quite later on in his life when he presents his wife with a diamond ring. must be a wedding anniversary because the kids have grown up. And um, she wants to tell the story and wants him to tell the story, but he walks off and, you know, so she's trying to tell the story as best she can. He's got a real problem with his mental health and another event that's coming up is going to to make that even worse, of course. And in a sense, some of the um, symptoms of PTSD are things like flashbacks and nightmares and anxiety. And I think one way to read the film, one way to read the moments of World War II and his life on Tralfamador is alternatively as flashbacks and as nightmares, as, if you like, visions, hallucinations and stuff like that. And I don't think the film really resolves that in any way, shape or form, do you? I, I don't think it does either. I do, however, so I was, I was, that was my first sort of like reading of it, and I think it's quite a cynical reading, um, at least the way that I was doing it. This sort of like, I mean, it's not, it's not actually a sci-fi film. It's pretending to be, but actually it's just the, the hallucinations of someone with, with PTSD. But I actually think that's the, the boring way to read the film. I think the more interesting way to read the film is that he had PTSD, but also he was actually abducted by aliens and became disjointed in time. I think that's much more interesting. Not without a shadow uh, of a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not a clear... I just want to give you three, three reasons why there's mm-hmm. some problem with that reading, even though. I affirm that reading. There are there are problems rather than it just being down to his PTSD. Um, one is Spot. When he comes home and just before he's taken to Tralfamador, Spot is a really elderly dog that he has to carry up the stairs. You know, he's put on a bit of weight. He doesn't move much. He just lies around. But when yeah. the lights come and then um, he sits up in bed, Spot is transformed back into a young dog again. And when they're on Tralfamador, Spot is a young dog. Now, it's not to say the aliens couldn't have done something, but there's, there's a sense there of what's happened to Spot. It was aliens. The aliens did it. Yeah. The other thing is, is he's deaf. I mean, he's, transfer- he's trans- uh, transferred to Tralfamador, yeah, but he dies back on Earth a lot later on when he's older. So we could be seeing here that he's kind of been split in two. Yeah, that he's got two presences, one on Earth, one on, you know, parallel timelines. That could be an explanation as much as anything else. And of course, then there's the Montana incident who is brought in and she obviously is, is created for him out of a fantasy figure. He catches his son pleasuring himself in a toilet and sees this young woman in a centerfold. And then they go to a movie, um, a drive-in movie, some really hokey kind of Roman costume drama and Montana's in that and he's enraptured and she could be seen as a fantasy figure that's transferred into this kind of dome on this planet which is millions of miles away and I think it's indicated at the end that she disappeared a long time ago which of course being an atemporal species these aliens that doesn't matter yeah but 
it's it's not, I really just want to make the, the point that it's it's really not clear cut. I don't know. I I kind of think it is. I mean, I think it's deliberately ambiguous, but I think the film's landing on the on the alien side of things. To underline that, it's the the predictions that he starts to make. So he becomes aware that the plane's going to crash. In his death speech, he says that he's actually lived through that death speech numbers of times, and then he's going to go back yeah. through. Even the at the very early bit, there's a scene when just after the credits roll, when he's with Montana and he talks about um, kissing, and he sort of says it out loud while he's in the snow, and the two American soldiers that have found him kind of jump on him, and say, "What are you talking about kissing people?" You know. So yeah, I, I mean, yeah. So in other words, you're giving me evidence for exactly the opposite reading. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think the, so I think really this, he has become disjointed in time, and he's visiting different points in this timeline hence it's like what you were saying about sort of looking around and uh just sort of taking things in bumping into um the the soldier with trench foot all the time oh roland I'd, weary yeah yeah i'd say that that's um actually he's doing that because he's come back wonderful i love that he's come back and he's like oh yeah this is what it was like a bit like me and my vr headset you know it's sort of like everything sort of standing out as slightly more wondrous because it's not it's not real He's coming back with a, in other words, with different affects. Yeah. It's even hard to say he's an old man going back to a young body because he's unstuck in time. That, In a sense, the yeah. self here is timeless. Yep, and he's just being dragged. I mean, he even begins, the word he begins to lose meaning because there's lots of different he's and they're all interacting and things are jumping forwards, things are jumping backwards. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I like that. Yeah. But, 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 but what about the death then? How do we explain the death? Why does it need to be explained? Because he's kidnapped and taken to Tralfamador and he's told he's never going to leave. But he obviously dies on Earth later than when he was kidnapped. I mean, I guess it depends what they mean mean by that. I mean, I, I, I take it that he's been he's been taken there and he is while they're able to move through the different timelines and the different places. I I don't think there's a contradiction there. Time time is definitely um moving all over the place. Space can as well. You know, he's moving along his own timeline. You know, if you want to try and construct a continuous timeline, um, although I think that the the future for him, sort of after he goes to Tralthalmador, it's more discontinuous than the past because he at that point he's no longer experiencing ordered time. Yeah. But I think that if you want to try and construct it, you would say that he is on Tralthalmador and he's seeing his future and what's going to happen in the future while he's there. So he isn't actually going to be there forever. But he may be there forever in the sense that, um, I mean, because don't, don't they say something about how he just doesn't understand how eternity works? Yeah. You don't understand how time works. In the sense, it's very much like Arrival, isn't it? Which we looked at with uh, one of our guests in the last season. Yeah. So yeah, the film's, the film's answer to that is that, I've just got it here, there is no how, why, the moment is all that really is. You know, if they say you're always you're going to be here forever, it doesn't really mean anything because that sense of time doesn't mean anything. Always doesn't mean anything. Now, I I think that the portrayal of his trauma is during is while he's on Earth. Yeah, I don't know. I'm tempted to say that the only moments that we see which are real, like in the sense like sort of objectively real, how how films normally portray things, are when he's on Tralfamador, um, because. <laughs> All of the other moments are really weird and down to his perspective. I think the best way through that is the portrayal of the female characters. 
Um, although this actually, no, mate, what I said there about you know, Charles Thomas being the exception, um, uh, Montana's still portrayed in a, in a similar way. I don't find the female characters that believable. So the wife is always just portrayed as entirely devoted. Only talks about being on going on a diet for him. How grateful she is for him. Um, she's there to be given gifts by him. You only see these moments of her in these idyllic nuclear family American dream sequences. Uh, the daughter just nags at him and, and tells him that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing because it's bad for him. And Montana's kind of the opposite of those two, those two characters because she's, she's a reciprocal object of desire. You know, it's like within like 10 sentences, she offers to kiss him when, the, when they meet. So the, there's something odd going on with the female characters, which I don't think we can just write off of it being a film of its time. No, I think absolutely not. I think it's, it, I mean, I think the female characters in that way are very overcoded. Yes. By my watching, I know you've seen it more than me, but by my watching, there are only three scenes which are not from his direct point of view. Those are the, the first scene where the daughter and the husband are looking for him, although even then he could argue that he's hearing through the windows. Yeah, uh, but then he's not there. Uh, oh no, he is. He's oh, yeah, he, we've turned to that yeah, scene so he's at the very end. But he must yeah. be—he must be imagining where they are. Yeah, at that point, there's the scene where his wife, um, in grief, drives the car in a sort of exaggerated, to use a problematic term in heavy scare quotes, because that's how it's portrayed in this sort of hysterical grief thing. So she's got to get to the hospital for him. She's, she's crashing into things. It's a, it's a brilliant car scene, as good as any Fast and the Furious film in terms of the driving and the stunts. As good that. as, I'm going to say better, yeah. but yeah, carry on. Yeah. Uh, have you ever even seen a Fast and the Furious film? Yeah, two. I saw Tokyo Drift in Tokyo, but that's another story. Oh, everyone's seen one, at least. Um, but yeah, and, and she ends up sort of crashing in a sort of... Um, Carbon monoxide, and then there's another scene, uh, which is immediately after that, which is when is it is it, I don't know if it's a husband, I, 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 I lost track of who the character was, but speaks to the daughter and says, "Your mother's died." Yeah, Stanley. So that's Barbara's husband. Yep. Okay, so Barbara's husband says, "Look, your mother's died. Um, someone crashed into the car, broke the uh, the catalytic converter, and she died of carbon monoxide poisoning." And that does not map onto what we actually saw on the screen. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Because she backed into someone else's car. Yeah. Now, you could pick up that up with, like, you know, people rewriting, you know, history as well. But, you know, you've got those two scenes which he has no perspective, a direct perspective, and they both have got signs of not being real. That's very good. If you, if you look at that from those, those two moments, uh, two perspectives... How would he imagine someone rushing to his side? Yeah. And what happened, we don't really know. No one really knows, you know, because yeah. you don't when things like happen away from your life and you're just told reports and, and all of those things. Yeah, I like that. I like that, Matt. I like that a yeah. lot. So the way I read the film is that it's, if there is a continuity, it's that he's on trial Thalmador and he's revisiting these moments of his life and he's having these imagined experiences of certain events that are important to him but which he didn't he didn't actually perceive himself mm. it's sort of like if there is a um a continuous timeline to this film it's his subjectivity as he's going through these moments i think that's wonderful and kind of brings me around to what i wanted to kind of like talk through with you which was a bit of bergson really a bit of henry bergson Henri. 
Henri. <laughs> I'll do it for you this time. I will perform like your little monkey. And Matter of Memory, his 1896 book. And th- this film, to me, in one, in one way, really captured that up. I think in another way, it goes completely against Bergson. And that might be more interesting to talk about. And I know it's more your domain, and we can get around to that in a bit. But I thought we'd just like talk a bit about Bergson's theory of memory, first of all. And I know I said I wouldn't do it again, but can I read a little section from Matter of Memory? How many sentences is it? It is three. Are they Bergson sentences, though? Is it like a page <laughs> it's, long? No, it's one, <laughs> it's one Bergson sentence with three clauses. Okay, you can have it then. So he writes in Matter of Memory, but if almost the whole of our past is hidden from us because it is inhibited by the necessities of present action, it will find strength to cross the threshold of consciousness in all cases where we renounce the interests of effective action to replace ourselves, so to speak, in the life of dreams. And he, he kind of develops it on from the life of dreams to then say that um, we, we encounter dominant memories which are shining points, and around those shining points, other memories accrue and colour each other. A memory becomes this kind of like coloured, um, overlaying um, um, way in which overwhelms us. It makes the point that we don't jump into memories. We don't grab memories out of a bag, I think is his, one of his phrases. Yeah. We don't grab memories out of a bag. These, they're not about association, so to speak, along a linear timeline. Yep. But rather, reality is memory spontaneously coming upon us and, and colouring and being coloured by other memories so we don't really know what the reality, what the objective moment of that was once it has passed. And I think, I think that's what you were talking to there in your own way, and I think that's exactly what the film is exploring. But you also said you think it might be going against Bergson, so... Yes. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, so that would be... So one, of what, one of the things that Bergson's trying to do here, um, and it comes in at Matter of Memory towards the end in the final chapter when he says he's going to draw some consequences, um, but he's not going to go into them too much. And one of the reasons is he's done that in previous books and will do it in books to come, but is, the, is, the, is free will. Yeah. And... For Bergson, this aspect of memory is what can allow us to have free will. Whereas the Tralfamadorians say something along like, we live in the fourth dimension, which I suppose we've got to say is time. Yep. Um, we have visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe. We have studied reports on, on 100 more. And only on Earth is there any talk of free will. So it runs against Bergson because in Bergson's version, these are all parts of our freedom whereas in the film it's presenting a kind of determinism but even then it's not an ordinary determinism because determinism requires a continuous timeline for it to work the idea of determinism is that every, the next moment is determined by the previous moment it's got its own temporality whereas it, you know as much as it doesn't make sense to talk about free will if you have a fixed timeline which you can visit and sort of see things game but where you die is always going to be where you die and what's the example they gave the the world gets destroyed because um a child thermidorian presses a button and nobody stops him pressing the button and yeah, nobody and they, will ever stop you know it's sort of it's more it's kind of nietzschean it's sort of the eternal return sort of thing. yeah 
yeah, they won't yeah. they won't stop him. But um, but equally, it doesn't make any sense to talk about determinism either, because you're also exploring all of these different things, and um, the causality is not clear because time is not being experienced as a as a series or a sequence of uh, nows one after the other. So neither freedom nor um, determinism are making sense anymore. But at the same time, there is there is a continuity which is the experience at least of the at least of the audience watching the film and what seems to be the sequence of Pilgrim going through all of these different moments as you sort of choosing or focusing on these different points of time. There's always the frame of um of the order in which these things are happening, even if they're happening in a way that's not causal and not continuous. Yeah, I mean the it's the in a sense it's the audience's job to string these three different timelines, if you want to see them that way, and, and make them into one timeline and then order all of those events within each of those three timelines. That's, I mean, in a sense, that's what the film is asking you to do. But then, you know, th- that's not the point of the film as such. Yeah, but that's in a sense you have to do that because we're... We're designed to do that, yeah. Well, you know, we've evolved to do that. Would be obviously the better way of. I mean, it. I don't, I don't necessarily mean that that we need to post hoc order the film and like map them out. So, like, say, for example, the Wikipedia article does do that. It says this is it. It's a continuous film. <laughs> this is the story of the different. And it puts it, and it really, and it tries to right. Okay, interesting. But he's a continuous account, and then it sort of gives the chronological account of everything that sort of happens. Uh, which that's, but that was my point. That there, I mean. That was the point I was making. There's the human desire, actually yeah. on Wikipedia, expressed yeah. through the writers. Of, I, you know, that's the only way we can relate this to people that will make really coherent sense because we we can put a subject into time and space and track them through that, and that's the way the world yeah. makes real sense to us. And that's what the Wikipedia article is expressing that desire. Yes, but I'm I'm that's not what I mean by saying that there is a continuity of. Of the order of happening, I mean, it's the the conscious. So, I mean, if it was a dream, it's the con- person who's dreaming it, and the order and the temporal order is the order in which the things happen in the dream, not in which they happen in the uh, in the reality. I mean, it's like um, it's like Heraclitus. So, there's the phrase that's often misquoted from Heraclitus is um, "In the river, ever different waters are flowing and flowing," and the emphasis is usually on in a sort of a Nietzschean Bergson way about how. You know the waters are always different. You can never mm. step in the same river twice. But equally, you can you always can run a Heraclitus statement backwards, even though there are ever different waters flowing. It's still one river. That yeah, that I agree with. I mean, in a sense, that turns us back again to what's happening within the film. There is a, a certain ambiguity where two readings can exist simultaneously, and they resonate. And there's a certain equivocity, undecidability, even against that, a polysemy, where both readings are possible at the same time. Where am I? Welcome to the planet Tralfamador, Mr. Pilgrim. Tralfamador? Tralfamador. Oh. How did I get here? There is no how, Mr. Pilgrim. There is no why. The moment simply is. I don't understand. Where are you? Oh, you can't see us, Mr. Pilgrim. 
We live in the fourth dimension, but we can see you, and there are many important Tralfamadorians here to welcome you. Oh, well, uh, how do you do? We hope that you'll find your accommodations here suitable. I have to stay here? I'm afraid so. You mean I can't leave of my own free will? Mr. Pilgrim, we have visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe. We have studied reports on a hundred more. And only on Earth is there any talk of free will. Do we read this as a trauma fantasy and, and flashback film, or do we read it as an actual sci-fi film with an alien abduction and being at time out of joint and all those things? And I think what's interesting about that is that if the film was presented in a classical realist way with a consistent you know, time stream, even if there was time travel jumping to, between these moments, there wouldn't be any doubt that this was a sci-fi film. Yeah. It's the discontinuity itself which makes it feel like this might be a dream, like Descartes, um, you know, you know, Descartes' meditations, where he's sort of like, "Am I dreaming or am I not?" And um, in the end, he says, you know, "When I come out of a dream, I can tell that it was a dream, but sometimes when I'm in a dream, I can't tell that I'm in the dream." And it's sort of, it's got this sort of um, aesthetic of non-reality that makes it feel like it might be um, someone hallucinating and or, or flashbacking and, and memory and dreaming and things like that. But what we get told in the film is that this is a film, or at least the aliens say, look, this is about being unstuck from time. And so we should expect the weird disjointedness mm. all the way through, because he's unstuck from time. Billy, you time tripping again? <laughs> I can always tell, you know, when you've been time tripping. You were back in the war, weren't you? Time travel's a bitch for you, isn't it? Particularly the war. I can't help it. Well, why don't we see if old Mother Montana can't keep you stuck right here for a while? A little kiss. A little kiss? Yeah, a little kiss. <laughs> a little kiss. A what? <sighs> a little kiss. You fucking faggot! What's the matter? You fucking so, Dave, is there anything that you wanted to uh, talk about that you didn't have a chance to? Yeah, I suppose just to develop the point on Dresden, really. One of the, the reasons that this, this film speaks to me so much is because it is focused around the Dresden event, and it might just be worth just saying a few words about what happened at Dresden. So on the nights of the 13th to 15th of February in 1945, something like 700 British RAF bombers and around 500 USA Air Force bombers area bombed the whole of Dresden. And it's worth reading the RAF memo that was given to the pilots before they set out. And it starts off with Dresden, the seventh largest city in Germany, and not much smaller than Manchester, is also the largest unbombed built-up area the enemy has got. And it goes on to say that they don't know it's the end of the war, but the Russians are coming from the Eastern Front, Dresden's on in East Germany. And the reasons they give for it are um, Dresden has developed as an industrial city. It will be a home for all of the refugees and the troops and the ad- administration workers. And the intent, and this is to quote from the last bit now, 
The intention of the attacks are to hit the enemy where he will feel it most, to prevent the use of the city. And incidentally, this is the last line, and incidentally, to, to show the Russians what Bomber Command can do. And this has meant that there's a really big controversy over Dresden. And this is pointed mm. to in the scene when he's in bed after, his, after the plane crash, and he's got this professor who's writing a book on Dresden who wants to kind of like show that it's going to be, that it was the right thing to do. Professor Rumford with two O's, Professor Rumford. And we, we get a couple of indications. Rumford says there was uh, 130,000 people killed. Okay. Um, I think when, he's, when Billy's getting the electric shock treatment and there's a kind of voice over his mother, talks about 100,000 dead and is like a, a Hiroshima event. The actual figures, as far as we know, um, that there were around about 25,000 people killed in all. And that was originally put forward by the Germans after the event and subsequent research has kind of showed that. And I, I certainly don't want to get into a, to, to, to belabor the point that that, that different 75,000 matters because both are a horrendous loss of human life. But the point mm. is that narrative has fed into two perspectives. And one is that this was strategic support for the Russians and the other one was that it was indiscriminate area bombing and it's a war crime. And that, that narrative is put forward both by people that don't like that kind of warfare, you know, the side on the side of um, peaceful res resolutions to conflicts, but also by the far right and particularly by the Holocaust denier, David Irving. Mm. And in a sense, the film is also looking at the undecidability of that event as well. Yeah, the, or the... The, the two perspectives of that event. And it's obvious what side Vonnegut and, Roy and George Roy Hill sit on that, yeah? And the, one of the reasons this is, this is really interesting to me is my dad was a navigator in the RAF during the Second World War, and um, he flew one of those Lancaster bombers. He was mm. a navigator, and he didn't really talk much about his experience in the war in any way, shape, or form over his life, except for... One Christmas drink when we were waiting for mum to cook the turkey. I wasn't a vegetarian back then. And um, he told me about Dresden and the shame he felt and how it haunted him and, and how he didn't understand. He was a young man. He must have been in his, like, 21 at the time. He joined up as soon as he could at 18. And that's something that haunted him, what happened at Dresden. And he didn't understand it, but it still haunted him. And I think that's what haunts this film in all those moments of equivocity, even if the film leans to one side that this is sci-fi, that this is a horrific act to, um, and an, possibly an unnecessary act, yeah? So perhaps, you know, just to follow on from all the points you're making, that even though there is this kind of undecidability positioned and equivocity and policy be positioned, actually, yeah, the film is anchoring itself two certain perspectives of truth on this. And one would be, yes, he was kidnapped by aliens. And yes, the events at Dresden's were horrific and were there to show what could be done. Whoa, that was, that was creepy. 
That was very creepy, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm, le- I'm leaving that in. <laughs> Could you hear the thunder then? Come yeah, from... yeah, it came right through the... <laughs> That's just going to sound like a sound you've... effect. Oh, God, you've pissed God off now. Yeah. <laughs> God, God's like, but what? you know what they did in Coventry, right? Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's 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 Rumsford, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what the hell is he saying now? Ich bin amerikanischer Soldat, Dresden. Schlachthof fünf. You want to know something? We didn't start the last war. The Nazis did. And 135,000 people dying in Dresden does not seem so very much when put against over 5 million allies who had to die. And you just might remember that when we were bombing Dresden, the Germans were sending V-1 and V-2 rockets into London, killing men, women, and children. Don't get so uptight, Jesus, it gives me a pain weeping over cities like Dresden and not give a damn about our own losses. Hey, what about Coventry? What about Rotterdam? What about the extermination camp the Germans were running? Gassing millions. 